The sermon today is based on Psalm 130, and I just want to give you a little bit of background before uh, we pray. Psalm 130 is located in the, in the book of Psalms. It's considered a psalm of ascent. Psalms of ascent are the songs that go from Psalm 120 to 134. Um, and the reason they're called Psalms of Ascent is because it's pretty much agreed upon that at the time, these were psalms or songs that the Jews sung as they were actually ascending the hill to the temple in Jerusalem for one of the three annual Jewish festivals. This particular psalm is also a song of lament, which is, just means that it's a, it's a crying out to God. It's, it's the psalmist is asking God for mercy because of whatever turmoil he has in his life. So with that in mind, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, as we come before you today, we pray that you will illumine our hearts and our minds and prepare them to embrace your word because it is true. Because in your word, you have shown us your love through your son. And we know that your word is effective and that by hearing it, our hearts can be changed and enlightened so that we may know you more deeply. And so, Father, I pray that the words that I speak will be clear and true to your word. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen. Again, the scripture reading is Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits for the Lord, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord, more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Bless the word of the Lord. If we look at the very beginning of Psalm 130, verses 1 and 2, the psalmist is clearly expressing an overriding sense of desperation. He's lost. He feels like he's overwhelmed with his sinfulness. He is at the end of himself and has nowhere to turn except to the Lord. And in verse 3, it's evident that he knows that not only he himself, but all humanity is corrupted by sin, and that we are entirely incapable of rescuing ourselves. He also appears to understand quite clearly that sin is our problem and that we ourselves are helpless to fix it. But in verse 4, we also see that he's confident that forgiveness can come only through God's merciful grace. And so he declares in verse 5 that he will wait for and hope in the Lord. So let me ask a question. Where do we find our hope? I'm relatively confident that most Christians will say, like the psalmist, that we find our hope in the Lord. I mean, that is what we're supposed to say, right? 
And it is the right answer. However, the only problem we have with this response is that for most of us, it's simply just not true. Not only do we not place our hope in the Lord, we rarely come close to obeying him. And during the course of our daily lives, we very rarely even acknowledge his existence. We're so caught up in this world and preoccupied with just getting through our day that we find it almost impossible to fit God in, to place our hope in the Lord. We say that Jesus is our Savior, and we truly mean that, but rarely do we look to him for comfort and assurance. Typically, when we encounter our daily challenges, our natural mode of operation is to try and fix things ourselves. And even when circumstances start to become overwhelming, we still turn to our own efforts. We buckle down and we try harder. We say to ourselves, my life is not the way it's supposed to be because I don't have the right job. I don't make enough money. I don't drive the right car. My kids are out of control. My wife doesn't think I understand her. My husband doesn't think I understand him. The list is endless. And so what do we do to remedy all these problems? Well, we convince ourselves that we simply must just try harder, work even smarter, be even more compassionate and understanding. And while there is some validity in these responses to, this, to these challenges, ultimately the problem is not in fixing anything in this life. In fact, I'm going to suggest that the problem lies specifically in our expectation that we can find a solution that will magically make all our earthly problems disappear. You see, all our earthly difficulties are, resulting, are a result of something that will never be fully made right in this world. So any attempts or expectations that we have in completely fixing these problems will continually frustrate us if we want them to be remedied in the here and now. Unfortunately, we often are distracted from this reality when things actually do seem to be going our way. And for Christians, this false hope can become even more challenging. Unbelievers are just that. They don't believe in Jesus Christ as their savior. Their natural inclination is to find worldly solutions to worldly problems. And very often they do a really good job at achieving amazing results. They, come, they become financially and socially acceptable. Their lives can seem like fairy tales to us. And so we look at these people and wonder, why do they prosper when they clearly are not trusting in the Lord? But if we look to Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 1, he expresses this exact reality. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? And to further exacerbate our problem, we Christians are often confused and sometimes left doubting when we pray to God to fix our circumstances and he appears not to answer us. And so very often, we also succumb and embrace the same worldly solutions as non-believers in an attempt to make our lives just a little bit better. But it's a false premise to think that somehow our earthly problems will go away if we simply do things right or pray harder. Even the most faithful Christians who actually do, on some level, make valiant attempts at trusting in God throughout their daily lives fall woefully short of God's expectation and requirement. 
In all that we do, do it all to the glory of God. God has set the bar about as high as it can possibly be. It's a perfect standard that we're supposed to meet. So after considering my initial question, where do we find hope? I'm going to ask that we refine our focus and suggest that while it is imperative that we do find our hope in the Lord, the more relevant question is, how do we define this hope? If the psalmist here understands the bad news that not only he himself, but all humanity is corrupted by sin, and that we are entirely incapable of rescuing ourselves, but that he also understands the good news that forgiveness can come only through God's merciful grace, then when he states that he will wait and hope in the Lord, what exactly is he waiting and hoping for? More specifically, what are we as Christians waiting and hoping for? What does it mean to hope in the Lord? To answer this question, I want to focus on three things, and they're all grounded in verse 5 of this psalm. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits for the Lord, and in his word I hope. So the three points are, first, because God's word is trustworthy, we know he will hear us when we cry out to him. Because God's word is trustworthy, we know our salvation is not up to us. And because God's word is trustworthy, we know we will one day be with him in eternity. So let's take a look at the first point. Because God's word is trustworthy, we know he will hear us when we cry out to him. How far do we have to sink before we actually do cry out to God in desperation? In the opening of this psalm, the psalmist declares that he has been laid low. He's in desperate straits. He clearly has nowhere else to turn but to God. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, hear my voice. Listen to me. I'm pleading with you. I'm begging you to hear my pleas for mercy. How many times do we feel like this? Either in a situation that we have created for ourselves because of our own stupidity and ignorance, or simply because of something that we really had no control over. But regardless how we arrived at this point, we are faced with the reality that we have absolutely no ability to get ourselves out of the mess that we're in. How many times do we say to ourselves, this seems so overwhelming that we just want to give up? Or maybe you're the type of person that, you know, when you just can't face the world, you just don't want to get out of bed for two months. I think most of us have been there, and some of us may be going through this right now. I must admit, given my recent experiences, both those that I have the ability to manage and those that are clearly beyond my control, I find myself wondering if jumping in my car and just driving anywhere other than where I am right now might not be such a bad idea. Escape from the troubles of this world can seem infinitely attractive when we're backed into a corner. Unfortunately, our knee-jerk solutions tend to only make things worse, and then we find ourselves in a place that's even lower than we thought we could have been when we thought we had actually reached rock bottom. It's quite amazing how we think things simply can't get any worse, and then they actually do. Over the past year, my mom's health has been failing progressively. We, meaning myself, my younger brother, and my older sister had made many attempts to convince my mom to move out of her house of almost 50 years and into a full-time care facility. 
a nursing home. But my mom is stubborn, not unlike many of us in this room. I got through this the first time. <laughs> and I can still hear the words echoing in my head when she emphatically declared that not only was there zero chance that she was going to live in a nursing home, but that, and this is an exact quote, I will die in this house. Well, the sad irony is that even in all her stubbornness, her plan was not ultimately realized. When I returned home to Rhode Island in early January, the first day I was home, my mom went into the emergency room with a bad blood infection. And a circumstance that was previously almost a normal occurrence became something much more severe in a relatively short period of time. And being 89 years old, her frail body simply could not withstand the convergence of problems associated with her initial infection. So when it became clear that her life was coming to an end, she was moved to the same nursing home where my father lives today. She died four days later after this move. The point of this story is that no matter how well put together we may think we are, life will interrupt us in the most extreme ways. It'll have us wondering, what in the world is God doing? And why doesn't he seem to be listening to us when we cry out to him? You can apply this principle to my mother herself or to me and how this course of events disrupted my carefully set plans. I'm a seminary student for crying out loud. I have literally abandoned my formal life, my work, many of my friends, all in an effort to be an ambassador to God. I kept asking God, how does it make any sense to put such obstacles in my way when I'm doing this for you? Yeah, sounds familiar, huh? <laughs> Do we ever wonder why God doesn't seem to respond to these sorts of desperate cries? You see, the problem with this particular cry for help, this plea to God, is not in its recipient. No, it's in the plea itself. More specifically, it's in the one making the plea. Our problem when we cry out to God is that too often we're crying out to him to change our circumstance to what we believe is best for us. So when he doesn't do that, we come up with terms like unanswered prayer. I hate that. And I would suggest there is no such thing. Does God hear us when we cry out to him? Absolutely. And most importantly, I believe our cries to him never go unanswered. The problem is, we just don't usually recognize the answer because it's not the one that we're looking for. James 4, verse 3 is quite clear. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. Passions there means a multitude of things. So now that we're all wallowing in our misery, let me offer some good news. <laughs> if we are believers in Christ and him crucified, God promises that when we cry out to him in desperation, he will not only hear us, but he will answer us. In Psalm 6, verse 9, another psalm of lament, it's clear that God not only hears us, but he accepts our prayer. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. And in 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 5, there is the promise that he will heal us. 
I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. The key in understanding God's answer to our cries to him is an understanding that he will always answer in accordance with his will. Again, in Matthew 6, verse 10, explicitly tells us in the Lord's Prayer that this is a key component of our prayer to our crying out to God. Your kingdom come, your will be done. So the question again we have to ask ourselves is, are we praying to God Are we crying out to God in hopes that his answer will be in accordance with his will or with ours? But in addition, Psalm 31 gives us confidence. In addition to it giving us confidence, it also promises that he will do for us what we are incapable of doing for ourselves, which leads to my second point. Because God's word is trustworthy, we know that our salvation is not up to us. While we as Christians will likely agree that we are incapable of saving ourselves from our sin, we frequently forget this biblical truth and revert, albeit subconsciously, to functionally expecting that our works, or lack thereof, will have a direct correlation on our standing in God's eyes. Failing to confront the truth that our sin is so far beyond the, uh, any ability or desire on our part to remedy our situation. But again, in Psalm 130, verse 3, the psalmist reminds us if God should count our sin against us, who could stand? He clearly understands that our sin is all encompassing and that we have no chance of fixing this problem ourselves. But he also follows up in verse 4 with the good news that while our Lord is our judge and a God of perfect righteousness, he is also the source, the only source of our forgiveness. And in verses 7 and 8, he continues by declaring that our hope must be in the Lord because the Lord is the source of unrelenting love. And because of this love, he is the only source of our redemption. Verse 8 is very, very clear and wraps this whole thing up. He will redeem us from all our iniquities. Paul in Ephesians 2, verses 4 to 8, solidifies this remarkable truth. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. So again, it's very clear that God has made a promise to us that he will not only forgive our sins, but that he will bestow on us the perfect righteousness of his son. This is redemption accomplished. It is the promise of the covenant that was established with Abraham in Genesis 15 and was ultimately fulfilled in the new covenant by Christ. It is God alone who does all of this for us. We simply receive this most amazing gift of redemption in Christ. God is the one who promised redemption, and God is the one who fulfilled this promise in his son. And this may sound really crazy, but we simply can't stand that. I know, good God-fearing Reformed Christians will shout from the mountaintop that it's God that does all the work of salvation in and through his son and that we contribute nothing to our redemption. 
But the unfortunate reality is that most of us don't just don't live as if this is actually true. I remember leading an adult Sunday school class a few years ago at my church back in Rhode Island. Church is in a relatively urban setting, and so we tend to get quite a few homeless people that hang around. They sit on the front steps. It's got two doors in the front, and they're pretty wide, and it's an old church. It's about 130 years old. It was built by stonemasons. It's beautiful. You'd think it was Catholic. And many of these homeless people, when they hang around, they smoke. And some of them have probably been drinking as well. And I will freely concede that very often these people, I really hate saying that, uh, the us and them thing. Uh, Anyway, they can often be unkept and not smell all that great. So when I arrived at church this one Sunday morning, I was wondering what the heck was going on because there were two police cruisers parked in front of the church. The officers were having a conversation with a homeless man named Tim and a woman from our congregation. Apparently, she had called the police because Tim had been sitting on the front steps allegedly blocking one of the entrances to the sanctuary, making it inconvenient for some of the people to get in to worship on Sunday. Talk about irony. Now, the reason I mention Tim's name is because I know him. Yes, he smokes. I used to. And I know that he has an alcohol problem. But I'm also aware that he is one of the more friendlier, least argumentative people I know even when he's drinking. And so I was skeptical when I heard that he was causing a problem. The sad reality here is that I had been trying to get him to come into the church for months. And while he never actually did step across the threshold, I thought that I might have been making just a little bit of progress. You see, as Reformed Christians, we will be the first, hopefully, to confess that it is God alone that changes the human heart. But very often we attach caveats to who God reserves his salvation for. Subtle conditions that may include appearance, economic status, ethnicity, or the ability to overcome any form of addiction. But if God chooses based on any of these criteria, the harsh reality is none of us are getting chosen. So which is it? In Matthew 20, verse 15, Jesus tells us flat out that it's God who chooses whom he chooses because he is God. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? And while we may theologically agree with this principle, deep down, we just don't think it's fair. Which ironically is exactly the point of the gospel. It's not fair. That's the beauty of it. If it were fair, we would all be judged according to God's perfect standard. Remember the one I just read, do everything to the glory of God to the best of your ability perfectly? How's that working out? But the good news is quite literally that, good news. God has done for us what we could never have done for ourselves. And because of this, we can now dwell with him in eternity, reaping all the benefits of being heirs of the family of God. Which brings me to my last point. Because God's promise is trustworthy, we know one day we will be with him in eternity. 
I may be going on on a limb here, but I believe that patience is a virtue many of us lack. We simply do not like waiting. Our world today revolves around speed. If it can be done faster, then we think that's got to be a good thing. But I'm also guessing that we've all heard the saying, there is always time to do it over, but there's never time to do it right. This, unfortunately, is just how we operate. You can call it fallenness, brokenness, corruption, sin, but whatever you call it, even the most virtuous of us suffer from this problem on some level. I spend a fair amount of time driving. Some people might think that being in a car as much as I am can be worse than fingernails on a blackboard or sardines in your ice cream. Yuck. But I actually find driving quite relaxing. For me, it's very therapeutic, especially in the early morning. And when I say early, I'm talking really early, like 2, 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning. Now, I don't do this as a rule, but typically when I have some place to travel that's far away, it's great to get up that early because there's nobody else on the road except for cops and maybe some of the people that were out having some fun the night before. My point is, is that driving helps me think. It clears my head. But while driving is my own sort of, sort of personal little therapeutic psychotherapy thing going on, what I simply cannot tolerate is traffic. One of the benefits of driving a four-wheel drive is that I can pretty much escape just about any annoying traffic backup. Even the most topologically challenging medians are no match for my dogged determination and my forerunner. Tra you see, while I like driving, well, I think driving is my own little therapeutic paradise, traffic is the harbinger of doom because I hate waiting. I have zero patience. I can quite literally turn from the most docile, relaxed person into a raving lunatic at even the hint of a backup. This is clearly an area of my personality that I need some work on. But as they say, you know, realizing your problem is like 90% to sit fixing it. Let's just say I'm working on it. Anyway, the takeaway here is that the psalmist tells us that contrary to what the world would have us believe, waiting is not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, it's a good thing when it involves our faith. Verses 5 and 6 tell us explicitly that we are to wait for the Lord in hope. We are to wait for the Lord because in his word we have hope. Which means that while in this life we may encounter what can seem to be insurmountable challenges, we can have assurance that our hope will be ultimately realized in him because of his steadfast love, in his redemptive word, that is Jesus Christ the Son. And as the psalmist here gives us his own short sermon illustration, he shows us by repeating a line to drive home a particular point. And in verse 6, he says, My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. And although the psalmist wants us to emphasize this visual waiting by repeating this line a couple of times, I believe there's also a metaphor in this repetitive statement of anticipation, a looking forward towards something beautiful and wonderful, something that we know will come, because we know that morning always comes. Like a watchman waiting for the morning, the anticipation is grounded in the assurance that morning will come. 
The coming of a new day is infinitely reliable, not only because it's established by God's creative work in Genesis 1, but it is an experiential reality that anyone can notice. It is guaranteed. But I think this metaphor is even deeper. It is a continual demonstration in the divine creative work that there is light that comes out of darkness. As John declares in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 of his gospel, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In his word, both written and incarnate, we see the truth of God's promise to all who trust in him. And through the word made flesh, we can have hope and assurance that our redemption is secure. Even if it appears that our prayers, our cries to him, may seemingly go unanswered. Yes, God promises to redeem us from all our sin and iniquities, but this will not be fully realized in this earthly existence. I'm sure we're all aware that there are multitudes of unbelievers who embrace their sins with gusto, people who deny God but never seem to experience life's hardships. But we also understand that if we ourselves make foolish decisions in this life, there will very likely be consequences that will lead to our suffering. But because we are Christians, we also have to be discerning in how we understand our suffering. There is a part of Christian suffering that we not only should be prepared for, but as Peter tells us in 1 Peter verses 12 to 19, we should embrace when it's for Christ's sake. And so we find our joy and peace as, and so where we find our joy and peace is in our assurance that our final rest is in our eternal walk with God. The gospel is the promise of God's gracious redemption. It is the promise of our future glorification in and with God. But it's so important that we recognize that while our redemption, our salvation, is promised by God for all those who believe, this promise is a truth that will not be fully consummated in this fallen world. Do not expect in this world what is only promised for the next. So we will suffer not just because suffering is a result of our sin, but because it is one of the mechanisms that God uses to bring us to himself. And it is also exemplary of a life of faith in Christ. It is the reason why we can have hope when we cry out to him. Paul in Ephesians, in Philippians 3, verses 8 to 11, embraces this exact truth. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Our hope, our assurance is made real and true by God's promise. And this is a promise guaranteed in the life, work, death, and resurrection of his son. Yes, the Christian life is grounded in suffering, but it is a suffering that leads to glory. And this glory is only fully realized in our eternal walk with God. It's a future glory. Our crying out to the Lord because of our suffering is not something that we must endure, a life hurdle that we must somehow find a way to get around. No, 
It's a reality we must embrace in order to understand our position before God. It is in humility, in submission, in crying out to him in desperation that we finally see the true wonder and miracle that is redemption in Christ. And until we understand the measure of this truth, we'll never understand the miracle of redemption in Christ. The sad reality is, yes, this world is broken because of our sin and that we will suffer in this life. But the most important and wonderful reality is that because of God's amazing gift and his son, Jesus Christ, we can now look forward to an eternity with God. Revelation 24 verses 3 and 4 gives us this promise. We will be with him and he will wipe away every tear. There will be no more death or crying or pain, for the former things of this world will now have passed away. And in the famous words of J.R.R. Tolkien, everything sad will have become untrue. This is what enables us to face a life when all worldly hope seems lost. It is the promise God has made to his people in his son, Jesus Christ. And it is the true understanding of what it means to hope in the Lord. You pray with me. Father in heaven, you have given us hope, a hope that is secured in your promise that if we believe in your son, Jesus Christ, we will have eternal life, a life that will be filled with walking with you in glory, a life in which all our suffering will be forever gone. We will have no more tears because you have conquered death for us in your son, Jesus Christ. Father, this is a gift we don't deserve and a gift we can never repay. And for this, we can do nothing but humble ourselves before you in praise. In Christ Jesus alone is our hope. Amen.